But one thing that, that is just fresh in my mind always is that I, I grew up in the church and I grew up in the church. And, and, and one of the things that is real evident to a lot of us is, is the emasculation of the church. And not only is there, a, are there oftentimes shortage of, of men who will lead, it's that women have led so long that the, the men would maybe lead. They just don't know any other way of doing it. It's like, I'll let them make the decision. Listen, when it comes time to decorate your new sanctuary, don't let the women do that. If you want to reach other men and bring in godly, aggressive shepherds of their families. You know what I'm saying? And that's, I mean, again, I don't want to get derailed, but I feel like a lot of times we, we are creating a feminine environment. And, and a feminine environment is not wrong for women. And, and likewise, we don't need to just try to create a red meat gun-toting environment, though that's not wrong for men. And that's what this weekend looks like. But Scripture teaches us that there is a, a, a nature to the church where men need to, to, to do their part and women need to do their part. And, we need to, and it's just completely unpopular to, to touch gender roles in our culture. You're immediately pigeonholed as a fundamentalist if you talk about men doing what they need to do and just leading. Just make decisions. Just lead. And, and, uh, and, and where that starts is in our homes. It starts in our homes. And, and I think one of the reasons that there's, uh, and, and, and let me say this as a disclaimer, I don't know 90% of y'all. So I ain't, if you sit there and you think he's, he's picking on me, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe the Lord will speak to you. Uh, maybe not, but I'm just saying what we see with a few hundred, four or 500 churches a year that we cross paths with is a deficiency in biblical male headship at every level. You got a pastor who's doing it on his own, a youth pastor who's doing it on his own, or a small group of men who need more men to come alongside, and so we need we need male leadership. And 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 I think a lot of times it's not happening in the in the church because it's not happening in the home. And so uh, so I want to talk about that tonight. So turn to Colossians three, and uh, I promise I won't say anything just just for the sake of shock factor. Um, I think it's important to remember that last night's text ended. Uh, in verse 14 with let everything that you do be done in love. And there's a need for compassionate courage, compassionate courage in leadership. And it's something that we don't see in society very often. You see courage a lot of times, but there's a lack of compassion or see an abundance of compassion and there doesn't seem to be courage. And, and, and and we need to exhibit both. And Christ did that. And, and, uh, kind of velvet covered steel, you know, and, and just with the, with the strength of, of, of Christ at our core and with the tenderness of Christ and, and how we connect with our families relationally, but also how we have the, the strength and the courage to lead them. Colossians chapter three, verse 18, it says, wives submit to your husbands as, as is fitting to the Lord. I won't say much about that. Um, other than to say this, Christ submits to the father Within the, within the Trinitarian existence of God, Christ com- submits to the father. We see it throughout the gospels. Jesus would say, Hey, this is what the father says. And so this is what I do. And, and, and yet Christ is equal to the father, God, the father, son, Holy spirit. There's an equality there. Okay. So there's a, a willful submission, but from a position of equality, likewise, the Holy spirit does the work of the father and the work of the son and the Holy spirit. Jesus refers to him in the gospel of John as the helper which is the same way that God refers to Eve in Genesis chapter two. She's Adam's helper as the Holy Spirit is the helper to the believer and and the third person of the Trinity. So within marriage, within the role between husband and wife, there's a Trinitarian existence where the husband is to lead, the wife is to submit, but as a helper who is equal to, but with a different role. We need to understand that's that's really messed up in in a lot of homes, uh, even within the church. Then he, then he, then he attacks us. Husbands love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Don't be harsh with them. And I think it's, I think it's a difficult balance for us to find. How do we love our wives? And, and let me, let me also say, if you're here and you're single, these things really matter to you. These things really matter to you. And, And there are enough married men who would say, if you can get this now, 
it will make marriage work a lot quicker. If you can get this now, it, it, this matters. You're like, I'm 17, man. I'm, it's not on my radar. It, it matters. Okay. And so when we go back to Genesis and, and we, here's what we see happen in Genesis chapter two, God presents Adam with his wife. And before he's ever done that, he tells him to work the garden. So he places responsibility on him. We talked about that last night. He tells him to keep the garden and then he gives him scriptural instruction. Okay. So he gives him commandments that Adam is then to lead his family with. Well, when, when, when he presents his wife to him, he says, um, that a man shall leave his mother and his father and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. They'll become one flesh. Okay. So there's a, there, there is before the fall, I'm going to get kind of, um, just follow, follow my line of thinking here before the fall, before sin, God has established the leave and cleave structure of marriage. Okay. This is why it's a problem when, you know, the average gamer in, in, on his mom's couch in the basement is, you know, 27 years old or whatever, you know, we, it's time to leave and cleave. Okay. I don't know how many times I've, I've, you know, had this talk with young guys, 22, 23 years old. I'm saying, Hey, there's a point where you take a wife, you take a wife, you know, you pursue a wife, you pursue a woman, you, you leave mama and you go find a wife. Okay. There's a, a burden of responsibility placed on us here. It goes back to last night, the indicatives and the imperatives. This is what Christ did. He left the throne of heaven and he came and took a bride. We're to then as men, we, we pursue a wife. Okay. So this is scriptural. So before the fall, before sin. Okay. And then it says in Genesis two, right after that, then it says, and the two of them were naked and unashamed. They're naked and they're unashamed. Okay, so there is a, certainly an aspect of perfection before the fall. There was no need for shame. But here's, here's the covenant grace of God. After the fall, one of the first things they notice is that they're naked. Remember this? God comes to Adam and says, what are, you, what are you doing with the leaf suit? Okay, well, I know you ain't going turkey hunting. You know? What are you doing with the, with, the, with the leaf suit? And Adam says, well, I was naked. And, 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 it, and he reveals that, okay, there's a shame here that comes from sin. And God's grace in the covenant to Adam is that he says, okay, my grace and my mercy will cover your shame. So God prepares clothing for them. Remember that? He kills an animal and institutes, you know, hunting. Um, <laughs> not really. But uh, um, <laughs> hopefully you are picking up on my sense of humor and not thinking I'm a heretic. Okay. Um, so he, he, he covers their shame. That's God's grace. But then in Genesis 3, as he hands down the curse, he also extends grace to them and says, here's grace. You know, the, the, the curse is this and then grace is this. And so after the curse, after sin came into the world, there is now friction between man and woman because God says it to Eve and he says it to Adam. There's going to be this, this lack of trust. Okay. So what causes shame in a marriage relationship? couple things. One, lack of trust. Two, I, I most identify the sin in my spouse that I know that I'm guilty of in my own life. That's what I pick out in her. Well, she's doing this or she's thinking that, or why is she working this angle? Well, in reality, it's probably because that's a condition of my own heart. Okay. So, so that, but the third, and I think the biggest reason that there's shame in marriage is because the spouse, specifically in our case, the husband doesn't extend the Genesis two and three type of grace that God extended. And so my grace and graciousness is what will cover and remove my wife's shame. Or frustration or lack of trust. So in, in loving my wife and not being harsh with her, the question is this. Do you love her in a way that reflects Christ's post-fall covenant love to us where he says, you're shameful, let me cover your shame. You're untrusting, let me give you something to trust. Let me author your faith. Let me remove your nakedness. Let me cover you, love you, graciously provide what you need to not live in shame. And we have to ask ourselves the hard question. Are you a husband who shames your wife? Who says things to her that makes her feel guilty or that causes her not to trust? Because if she doesn't trust you, then she's also going to grow in the area of, of shame in her life. There are going to be things that she's ashamed of or embarrassed of or, or that she doesn't feel a confidence to talk about. The fourth guy we looked at last night was Beniah. And remember Beniah, he, he, you know, the third guy, Shema, 
fights for the field, protects it, kills the enemy, guards the field. But then Benaiah shows us how then we're to expand and, cre- and, and recreate an Eden-like existence where there is fellowship and communion with God. As a husband, your responsibility, my responsibility is to create in my home by the help and the leadership of the Holy Spirit an Eden-like existence where the highest priority and the greatest freedom is fellowship and communion with God. You understand the parallel? In Eden, prior to the fall, what did Adam have? What did Eve have? They had perfect communion and fellowship with God. When shame came onto the scene and sin came into the world, then all of a sudden that fellowship is, un, is, is hindered and it's, and it's broken. And so that affects then the brokenness of the fellowship between husband and wife. So uh, even when we see in, throughout Scripture that there's hostility within the world, that hostility grows out of the hostility that, that exists between man and God. So my hostility towards God, my enmity with God, my broken fellowship with God is going to then equate to broken fellowship or hostility or lack of trust towards others. And the closest circle is who takes the brunt of that. And some of you can sit there and identify with that because the people that catch the most crap from you on your worst day, your wife and your kids, because that's the nearest circle of hostility. When the reality is it's an issue of hostility between me and God. So God close them and, and extends grace. So then the covenant grace that I'm able to extend to my wife as it reflects the way God loves me is that I, I work and labor by the help and leadership of the Holy Spirit to provide as Benaiah did when he pursued the lion into the pit to not just you know, protect the borders and lock down the borders, but to expand the area of freedom. Then, then as a husband, I'm to expand the area of freedom that my family experiences between them and God. Because the hostility that I want to see first removed in my children's lives is hostility between them and God. Scripture says prior to being in Christ, we're hostile towards God. So remove that. So in, in, in serving my wife and not being harsh with her, I lead her, but I serve her. It's servant leadership. And Scripture says over and over that this is a picture of the way Christ loves us. It's the way Christ loves the church. So I remove her shame by extending grace, extending grace, extending grace, extending grace. But understanding that sometimes extending grace is, demands courage for me to lead. And one of the most gracious things a godly husband can do is lead his family. So I lead. So then he, he moves from wives to children. Verse 20. Uh, from husbands in the way they treat their wives. And he goes to children. He says, children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Okay. And so we'll move right past that. I preach on that a lot. Um, verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I want to park right here, and this is where I want to handle the bulk of the message. So just with with a short intro on how we're to treat our wives, now what he's going to do is he's going to talk about how we should lead our homes, okay? Now, I know that some of you are grandfathers. You're you're through the child-rearing years, and, and I would say this. God teaches us as a father, and we can always learn how to be better fathers and then specifically how to be spiritual fathers in the church. So if you're in a situation where, let, I, let, me, let me give you a story. A local boy whose mom and dad, marriage is wrecked, dad got hooked on pills, ruined the family, and is gone now. Okay, it was a, it was a long, ugly spiral, three or four years. Real involved with, 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 this, uh, with the three kids, two, two daughters and then a, the younger son. Younger son started hanging out here at camp when he was probably sixth grade, okay? And, uh, <clears throat> and he's now a sophomore in high school, and he's on the varsity football team. Real big kid. Uh, probably, he's probably 6'2", 240, plays middle linebacker. And, but he hadn't grown into it yet. You know what I mean? He's not got what I call the kill switch, okay? So he's just a big, strong youngin that, you know, he can push people around if he, if he has to. But it's not quite the kill switch hadn't been flipped. And last Friday night at the ball game. This, and, and I talked to this kid, but not a ton. At the game, uh, he's playing middle linebacker. Hole opens up. Guy comes up the middle, uh, takes a handoff, comes up the middle. And, and this young man, I mean, it's, it's, it was pretty. It was, it was fantastic. I mean, I, I felt it. You know, I, I, I'm confident I saw snot and sweat and a mouthpiece fly through the air, you know. And he just, I mean, you know, if you played football, that, when you get that lift, you get lower and you get that lift. And it's almost slow motion and everything's shaking as you're going through the air. And then, bam, and he hit the ground. And so he bounces up. And then there's a timeout. And they're coming towards the sideline. And he comes off the field. And I yelled his name. And all I did, I yelled his name. And he looked at me and I went, oh, this one I'm talking about. 
you're the man, you're an animal. Like that. Okay, that's all I said. I've gotten five texts from his mother this week. No, no, saying, I don't know what you said to my son, but it has changed everything about the way he plays football. She said, he's coming home sore, beat up, and he's saying, uh, did I tell you what Brody said to me Friday night? <laughs> so then I get a text today, and it, says, and it says, hey, I know you can't make it to the game tonight because you're going to be preaching. But when the sermon's over and the, and, and the worship service is over, they're going to have the game on the radio on 102.7 if you can catch the last part of it. What is this kid doing? He's saying, I need a spiritual father. And one comment on a Friday night matters that much to him, that much to him. And I'm saying if you're 60 or 70 and you're past raising your kids, there are young men who need spiritual fathers and the church is to supply that. One of the responsibilities of the church is to supply that. That's why James says pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, take care of widows and orphans. And, and, and there, there are young men who maybe they got a physical dad, but they're spiritual orphans and they need men. So, so I don't want you to just kind of wash your hands of it all. when we start talking about child rearing and go, I don't have any, because what we're doing is we're looking at what God expects, expects for us to do in reflecting his nature as men and specifically as fathers in the home and then fathers in the church. Okay. Church fathers. We need church fathers. And I don't mean to count with a little collar and the robe. Okay. We need church daddies. Fathers who are investing in young men. Okay. That's what we need. So he says this, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. In Ephesians 6, 4, he says it this way, raise them in the nurture and the admonition or the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So here's what I want to do. Okay. I want to go through and give you a ton of bullet points. Tonight, we just want to get real practical. Okay. Last night was kind of a, you know, go to war, you know, kill them all, whatever kind of speech. Okay. So tonight, um, Practical, okay, practical, and, and, and hopefully this morning was super practical for you. I'm, I know I'm partial, but I feel like we have the most gifted, some of the most gifted teachers in the world, okay? And so I sat in a couple of those breakouts this morning and was encouraged anew, okay? Tonight, we want to get practical. We met and talked about what we wanted tonight to be practical. So, so, so bullet points, and remember this. Go back to last night. The indicatives always lead the imperatives. In other words... Anything that I'm to do and be as a husband or father has already been done and led by the example of Christ Jesus, by the example of God the Father. And so I'm following in those steps, okay? Uh, And so that means when I fail, listen, you fall and you end up on your face as a dad, a husband, you blow it. Christ is going to pick you up and he's going to continue with you, okay? He's going to continue with you. And so we're learning and then responding, that's the imperative. It is imperative. Remember it that way. It's imperative that I do these things. But it is indicative of God that he's already done them. The indicatives always lead the imperatives. That's how we steer clear of moralism and legalism. Okay, We, we let God the Spirit lead us. God the Father has exampled fatherhood. God the Son has exampled husbandhood. Okay, And so those things matter. I'm, I'm to reflect... God as a father to my kids, I'm to reflect Christ as a husband to my wife, to my kids, okay? And so he leads, and then I I follow, okay? So here we go. First one, love the Lord, love his word, and worship together as a family. Love the Lord, love his word, and worship together as a family. I don't know what this might look like for you. If, if, you're, if you're confused, and, and, and two great breakouts this morning, one on how to study scripture, two on the doctrine that we need to establish in the home for our kids before we send them out in the world, things that they need to be rooted in. Love the Lord, love his word. I don't think there's anything that can be more gracious than for your children to see you pouring over the scripture. For, for, listen, I, again, I do not want to create a legalistic environment. But for your kids to be convinced that you love the scripture more than you love Bill O'Reilly or ESPN. That matters. That matters. That they know you love God's word and that it is the highest authority in your life and that you submit to it, but that you love it. You love it. That's what erases legalism. Your love for the word. It's not just, it's not, it's not the same as Islam. It's not the same as the Quran. It's a different, it's a different thing. It's Christ is the word. It is impossible to love Jesus Christ and not love his word because John tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
And in verse 14, he became flesh and dwelt among us. If I'm going to love Christ well, I've got to love his word. An example of that. And, and for us, I don't know, uh, I don't, I don't know, you know, what it might look like in your home for us. We at night, every night that I'm home and I'm not here or on the road, which ends up being probably, I'd say 60% of the time, because we've got our kids on a jacked up schedule where they'll be awake when I get home, even from here most nights. And as a family, we sit together, we read together. And, and, and the way we do it is we go through books of the Bible. And if, you, and if nothing else, trust the faithfulness of Scripture. Read the Scripture together. I've had the opportunity to be in the Nelson home. Tracy Nelson, who's one of the pastors that's here this week, uh, I was in their home uh, three different nights, I think. And as a family, they get around and they just read the Bible. It's not magic. It's not magic. And I, I want to encourage you to read the Scripture. It's so encouraging to sit in that home and go, huh, here's an idea. Dad's leading family Bible reading. And if you'll do that, the word of God is powerful and will be powerful in the lives of your kids. And pray together and tell stories and eat, eat together and pray over the meal and thank God for his bounty. There's so many little ways that you can show your love for God in the way that you live day to day. Thank you, Lord. I'll never forget, I've told some of y'all a story. The night my son killed his first bear, we, we cut off some steaks off the hams on that bear and we fried him up that night and it's just me and him. It was a man night and it had snowed that day. And we, man, it was awesome. It was, it was like one of those perfect days, kill it, you know, in four inches of snow up on the mountain. We're eating that night. And he was about seven, eight years old. And I said, Tuck, I'd like for you to pray. And he said, Lord Jesus, thank you for the bountiful kill and for giving us dominion over this bear today in Jesus name. Amen. <laughs> Shared experiences and thanking the Lord and teaching them to appreciate God's gifts. That every so that so in the home every aspect is some some shadow of worship, and lead your family in that way. Number two, teach them to love God's standards from God's word. Teach them to love God's standards from God's word. Okay, so so it's not just it's not just the same as making them conform to certain standards, but teach them to love God's standard from God's word. Okay, so here's, here's what this looks like. In the Old Testament, God gave the Israelites the word. He gave them the Torah. He gave them the Pentateuch. He gave them the, the Old Testament law. Okay, and then what did they do? They then added the Talmud. Okay, if you don't know Old Testament history, God gave them scripture. Then they added a bunch to it. They made their own holy writings. Okay, and they said, okay, well, we need to follow God's word and we need to follow all of this. So God's 600 and some commandments that he had condensed into 10, that Christ condensed into two, they expanded into thousands. And they said, follow these rules, follow these laws, do all of these things. And what they did is they didn't teach their children to love God's word. They didn't teach their children to love God's standard. They taught them that, or they forced them to conform to a certain standard, but it was a standard that they had created. And that's legalism. That's legalism and legalism doesn't work. It doesn't work. It sucks the life right out of a person and and it, and it never works. And so we teach them to love God's word. We teach them. How do we do that? Back to the first point. We read it together. We, we, they, they see it change our lives and shape our lives as daddies. And it, and it will matter to them. And they, and they begin to love God's word and desire God's word. Teach them to love God's word. Teach them to love the standards set forth in God's word by our pursuit of holiness and our pursuit of God's word. These things matter. But we got to steer clear of just teaching them rules and laws. Give them the Torah, not the Talmud. Give them the Torah, not the Talmud. Not here's 8,000 laws to follow. I think in a lot of families, we see with a lot of young families, here's what happens. And some of you, maybe older guys that have already raised your kids, you might agree to this. Um, I, I see young parents smile, wink, and, and find their toddler's sin cute. The defiance, the manipulation, and they find it cute. And they think, well, I just love him so much. I just love her so much. And they excuse sin, forgetting that that child was conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. And that there is a sin nature that grips and controls that child. That that child's will must be broken. And their spirit at the same time must be nourished by the gospel. But what happens is men, they, they, they step back. A lot of times because they're scared of their wives. A lot of times because they're planning on establishing a democracy. My house is not a democracy. God did not call me to be 
you know, the head of the House of Representatives for the Holloway Nation. You call me to shepherd and lead. I'm to represent the King Jesus in that home. It's not a democracy. We don't take votes. Okay? That doesn't mean there's not times where we say, you know, y'all want to go to Zaxby's or Pizza Hut? You know, two to one. Okay, we're going to Zaxby's. Okay, I'm not saying, again, all of this with, with a grain of freedom, not legalism. Okay? But when it comes to major issues, we do not compromise the authority that God's placed us in. We can't. And I say we. I'm talking we. Okay? And so I see parents wink at their, their kids' sin. And they think it's cute when they defy their parents. They think it's cute. And then, or they throw their hands up. I don't don't know what to do. I'll tell you what to do. I'll tell you what to do. You love your kid. You got to stop this. Because this child will never submit his will to God. Because you right now are God to him. This is by God's design. You are exampling God to him. You are exampling Christ. And, but, so here's what they do. They, they unload freedom on this child when this child should have zero freedom. Unload freedom on this child. And then they create an atmosphere where the kid does what they want to do. And the parent says things like, I just don't know what to do with him. Or I just, man, he, 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 she takes after her daddy. Uh, that's, that's, that's her daddy. You know, that's his side of the family. Uh, and, but nobody's doing anything about it. Or they do this. Get over here. One, two. Oh, that's great. Teach him extended defiance, you know. Defy me for three seconds, I dare you. And then I'll give you three more, you know, whatever. God demands obedience, and he demands it now. As a, as a father, you're to demand obedience. That is the wisdom and the instruction and the nurture and the discipline of the Lord that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6.4. But then the, 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 what's so backwards about it is when they're 15, 16, 17, that's the time in their life where you should be letting go of the reins. You should have trained and equipped them to stand on their own feet, to pursue Christ, to love the word of God, to be conformed to Christ's image, to be pursuing holiness and stepping away and becoming their mentor. And instead, everything's backwards. So they're 15, 16, 17, they're smoking weed, hooked on porn, pregnant or getting somebody pregnant and you're going, I'll take the keys away. I'll do this. I'll do, and then, and, and then that parent is trying to buckle down. Well, you can't, it doesn't work that way. That's backwards. It doesn't work that way. So God doesn't treat us like that. Think about if you, if you've been a believer for a long period of time, or you know, someone who's been a believer for a long period of time, you've gone through phases of, of, of tight legalism in your life where the Lord was reining things in to get you straightened out. Maybe. You know, but then through, through growth and freedom, the Lord begins to extend to you certain freedom and maturity. And if we create that, if we enlarge those home borders, okay, I'm trying to stay away from like prayer Jabez terminology. Okay. If we enlarge, some of y'all get that joke. Um, some of you preachers, okay. If we enlarge the territory of our Eden that we're giving our kids, then there's going to be freedom within that, but freedom under the leadership and the guidance of a, of, of a father who loves Jesus and loves his kids. So we give them a love for God's word. We teach them the scripture. We give them the Torah, but not the Talmud. Not here's 50 rules you got to follow. And there's about three of them that I might discipline you for if you break, but otherwise it doesn't really matter. But instead we give them the right freedom. And it goes back to what we talked about last night in the garden of Eden. God gave a world of yes. And one no. In our home, it looks like this. You don't disobey. You don't dishonor your mother or your siblings. And you don't lie. We're a three-rule house. We call it the Holloway Nation Constitution. There's, there, there's three amendments in our Constitution. Last week, I amended it and added a fourth one. It was a temporary. Uh, it's got to be ratified yet. But, and it was, you're not allowed to, to lick anybody else in the family because <laughs> my youngest kid was chasing the others around with her tongue out. I'm going to lick you. I was okay. Time out. All right. This is, uh, this, this clause is going to come under. Don't disobey as of right now. Don't lick. Okay. So now if you lick, you're disobeying. All right, this is one of the three rules The don't disobey one, by the way, it covers, you know, a lot, but it's not, you know, and, 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 and I don't want to be, I don't want to recreate, you know, you got to find what works with you and your wife. But I know for, for us, if my kid wants to jump on the bed, I'm going to jump with him. I done broke two beds. Because how many of you, you grew up, and you don't jump on the bed. You get your butt whooped. 
Well, why was that? You know, what? What? break the bed. Yeah, let me tell you something. The time I had jumping on the bed with my kids is infinitely more valuable than the two strips of OSB I cut and screwed to the frame to fix the bed. My daddy and me jump on the bed. It was awesome. We broke the bed. It was awesome. We were jumping, stuff flying all over the house. So, so when I was growing up, we had this one room. It, it was like the, where everybody hung out. And all the furniture was like Goodwill and, you know, it was kind of rough, roughed out, you know. And, and then we had this other room. And this was the 80s. So it was like this paisley flowery big couch and a big chair and a love seat where there was no love given. Okay. And it was like, and it was these pastels. And I, as far as I know, in my 18 years of life, nobody ever sat on any of them seats. Except you know, like if a real important person came by the house, they'd go in there and sit, you know, don't you go in that room. And, and mama knew cause there was vacuum lines in the carpet in there. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so what, you know, so I'm not saying, you know, that's a sin, or, but I'm going, man, I want to create a world of, of, of yeses for my kids so that the no's that really matter can be applied and enforced can be applied and enforced. Keep going. The example that we have for this to give to our kids is that we love the standards ourselves. We love the word ourselves, And it always comes back to our example. The way that we're able to do that is because of Christ's example to us. He loved the word of God. He quoted it often. He studied, memorized as a man, fully God, but fully man. He loved the word of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20, let me give you a verse to, to kind of support that last point. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, and we utter our amen to, to God for his glory. All the promises of God find their yes. Become a father of yes to the right things, and no to the few right things that need a no. Your kids, next one, your kids should have your ear and your respect. I read this one in a book, by the way, but it makes a lot of sense. Your kids should have your ear and your respect. In other words, they should know that they can. Uh, where's Lance Bingham? You in here? Is Lance in? Lance and uh, Lance taught me this. Lance, kind of my example of what a daddy should be. And his son's here, and I'm, you know, I'm excited that one day me and my son will be sitting in a conference like this. Lance taught me this because when Lance was, uh, Lance is, uh, he's a few decades older than me, and. Um, yeah. <laughs> It worked out perfect. He's 10 years older than me, and then my, his kids are 10 years older than my two oldest kids. So when, when Little and I were first married 18 years ago, um, we would go hang out at their house, and his kids were tiny. And, and, I, and I learned that no matter what we were doing, when his kids spoke to him, he stopped what he was doing, and he listened to them. And, and, and I noticed something amazing. They didn't nag. They didn't, they weren't just like, look at me, listen to me, look at me, listen to me. And so it was so cool about five years ago, Lance was here one night and Tuck, my son was maybe five or six years old. And I was preaching to a group of students and Tuck comes in that door right there. And he had fallen asleep in the car later earlier that day and little parked the car and just left him. And he woke up kind of disoriented to know where he's at. He staggers in there and he, and he says, and he looks at me kind of panicked. He's probably four, four years old. He was, he was a little guy. And I said, come here, bud. He walks over and he says, uh, what's going on? <laughs> and I stopped everything, talked to him for a minute, turned my mic off, told him where he could find his mom. Lance came up afterwards and said, that's awesome, man. You know what you just did for your son? You just said, ministry matters, work matters, but there, there's nothing more important to me than shepherding you. It was cool. Cause I said, I learned it from you. Learn it from you. They need your respect. They need your ear. They need to know they can come to you. Your wife needs to know she can come to you. Communication is a constant breakdown in marriage. And how many kids don't think they can go to their daddy? I'll tell you about the percentage of the ones I talk to. And it is astronomical. Have you ever talked to your dad about this? No, I don't feel like I can talk to my dad about this. And there are some things where I would think my child would probably say, I need somebody else to talk to. And I pray that God brings those people into, into their lives. But there are things that I'm going, why would you not talk to your dad about this? You want to be a missionary? Why wouldn't you talk to your dad? Well, because he wants me to do this and this and this and this. Is your dad a believer? Yeah. He's a deacon at church. What? I don't think I can talk to him. They need our ear. They need our respect. 
The next one. Don't live vicariously through your children. Don't live vicariously through your children. If you sucked at football, don't expect your son to be a Heisman Trophy winner and be mad when he's not. Don't do that. Don't put that pressure on him. Your job is to alleviate that kind of pressure. There's certain pressure you need to place on your children. There's certain pressure we need to apply. The pressure that conforms them to Christ. But we need to alleviate those pressures that will not enable them to grow in the way that God wants them to grow. Don't live vicariously through your kids. We've all, look, we've all done it. I've done it. I'm guilty. Of it. Let, let, me, uh, let, me, make, let me insert this. I have not mastered these. Okay? I'm not speaking. One of the hardest things about being a, a pastor, teacher, preacher is that I have to speak and preach with the authority of Scripture, not the authority of me. And when you preach the authority of Scripture, it usually whoops your butt when you're preparing it and then whoops your butt harder when you're preaching it because you're standing there going, oh, gosh, am I a hypocrite? No, it's what Scripture says. I've got to tell you what it says. So I don't have this mastered. But it is, we've all done this, right? We go home, ah, oh, why did he do that? Why did she do that? And at the core root of it, it's like, it's a little league football game. Let's just go get ice cream afterwards. So I got, I got really convicted over this a couple weeks ago when my son had a real rough game. <laughs> Team had a rough game and it's like bad. And I was like, yeah, so we weren't doing anything right. And I was, and I'm competitive. You know, if you're competitive, it's hard to, you know, just chill. And after the game, I was like, hey, man, let's go watch a movie. Get some ice cream. We don't have to talk about football. You know it stunk. I know it stunk. We don't have to do that. Don't live vicariously through your kids. If you dropped out of high school, don't force them to go all the way through a graduate program and pursue a PhD. Don't put that pressure on them. They may do that. God may lead them to that. And you may, may coach and steer them. But don't put that pressure on them. Don't put pressure on them that is only feeding a deficiency in your own life. Okay? okay. Remember last night? We said we need to demand much from them. I'm, this, this is different. Okay? I need to demand much. I need to demand much. I need to teach them work and responsibility and respect. I need to teach them certain things that are going to conform them to the image of Christ and make them godly men and women. I don't need to put pressure on them that scratches a vicarious itch that I've got and makes me feel more worthy or less insecure. Okay? Don't do that. Don't put that pressure on them. Next one. Know how they're framed, how they're bent, how they're shaped psychologically, how they're shaped emotionally, how they're made, how God's wired them. You guys, if you've got multiple kids, you know they're not all the same. You know, I mean, I got one kid that if I just cross my eyes and look, you know, turn my head and kind of cross my eyes over at her, she just melts and implodes. I got another one. I can talk to her harsher than I can talk to any man that's ever worked for me. And she just, yes, daddy. Yes, sir. No, sir. I failed miserably. I'm an idiot. You have every right to be mad at me. Do you know what I'm saying to you? Oh, oh. Yeah, you, I, I want to be mad right now. Quit. Well, then I got another one that I go, hey, hey. And I'm, like, oh, I'm sorry. I mean, no, no, I mean, you're, you're right. And you're torn. You got to figure out what works for shaping that kid and molding that kid. They're not all the same. They're not all the same. I remember when I was growing up, my dad would whoop my butt over and over and over. And he rarely whooped my brother. And I remember I got older and I was like, what's up with that? He said, the only thing for you was a whooping. I couldn't talk to you. You didn't make sense. I couldn't make sense to you. I could have a conversation with your brother. I was like, that's all it took, you know? Man. He's like, you're a knothead. And he said, you know what? You're just like me. So I knew you needed your butt whooped about 90% of the time. I was like, I can't argue with it. It makes sense. You know, but, but don't feel guilty if, if dealing with one child one way doesn't work with the other one. And so you got to change it and understand that's, that's the role of a shepherd. It's the role of a shepherd. Understanding the sheep and understanding how to shape them and mold them. It, it matters. Their needs and their desires always take precedence over my hobbies. Their needs, their desires take precedence over my hobbies. If your wife's driving around in a beat-up van that 
you know, will barely get from point A to point B and you've got a $25,000, you know, Harley. We've got a problem. There's nothing, is there anything wrong with having the Harley? No. Man, I'd love, I mean, that awesome idea, I think. I'd love to have one myself. But, but mama needs to have her needs met, right? The kids need to have their needs met. And, and, and I need to make sure that, that their needs and their desires take precedent over my hobbies. That matters. That matters, okay? Doesn't mean we can't enjoy the things. God, listen, we blew up the Taliban today. In, in our minds, we killed them all. Okay, the war's over. Freedom rings, you know? We're down there, bang, 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 bang. Listen, I love having toys and enjoying hobbies. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm saying when it comes to precedent and priority, their needs, their needs, their needs. And when it comes to our wives, their desires, how can we serve those things? As long as they're not selfish, as long as they're not taking them away from Christ. Those things are important. Give your children time and lots of it. Don't believe the lie, quality over quantity. You get that? Give them lots of time. Don't, don't buy into this. Well, you know, the third Thursday of every month, we go get ice cream and it's quality time. Yeah, but you ignore them the other 29 days, 30 days of the month. Doesn't, it, won't, it won't balance out. Listen, when you get home from work, I know that, I know that you're exhausted. I know the day's long. They should get the richest fullest four or five hours of your day. And I know I'm in that phase of life where we don't get home for four hours. It's like work's over and we're at a ball field and there's a kid at this ball field and a kid at this ball field and a kid at this ball field and there's a game this night and two games this day and everybody's going. And there's not a lot of that, which amplify and, and, and listen, and it's awesome to go and support those things, but I'm talking about quantity time where when you finally get home, we're together. Maybe we're doing chores together. Maybe we're having a meal together, but, but giving them quantity time. Don't pawn them off with a $20 bill to go hang out with their friends. Quantity and quality time matters. Have courage and compassion and discipline. We talked about this earlier. Okay? So we need to discipline like God. Okay? So I want to I give you a couple of things, a, a few things, a, a couple lists here of things that will help us understand how God loves, disciplines, and directs us in instruction. Okay? First, to go back to an earlier point, God doesn't govern us with man's laws. Okay, that's legalism. So we avoid legalism in the way we raise our kids. Okay, dangers of legalism. In a legalistic system, I'm the highest authority. This this applies to church, it applies to family, it applies to your personal walk with the Lord. In a legalistic system, I create rules and systems of doing things that enable me to outperform others. Okay, So, so I don't need to create a legalistic society that makes my kids think they're better than others because of the music they don't listen to or the clothes they don't wear, you know, that dress modestly and she dresses like this. And so she's, we we went through this with one of my daughters, my oldest daughter, when she was about eight, we realized, oh wow, we've, we've taken modesty to the point of legalism. So we had to rein that in and and spend about a year teaching through that. It's a great learning experience for us to maintain legalism. We must point at others shortcomings. Because we're all sinners. In a legalistic system, I've got to point out somebody else's shortcomings and failures. And then that kind of gets me up to where I need to be to feel I got it, you know. I am at the center of legalism, not Christ. And Christ demands the center position in my life. I'm at the center of legalism, not Christ. Legalism contradicts itself and it never works and it ultimately implodes. Now, on the other extreme... Lest we swing away from legalism into the realm of license or an over, um, like, like what I would say, an over amplified or realized freedom. We need to be guarded against that because if we give them too much freedom, same thing. They become, you know, I'm the highest authority. I determine the rules. Nothing is sacred. Legalism is wrong. I'm right. And there's no humility and over exercised freedom. Likewise creates pride and points down at others. It's just a new tradition over an old one and legalism and liberty or license ultimately both contradict the gospel. So as I'm instructing them and teaching them rules and giving them structure, I've got to guard against legalism. Okay. So I don't just create a bunch of rules that create self-righteousness. Now, as they begin to, to need discipline and need shaping, there's some things that God teaches us in scripture in terms of how he disciplines his people. And I've got to discipline this way. I have to have the courage and the compassion to discipline my children in this way. 
Remember, the nurture and admonition, the instruction and discipline of the Lord, okay? Number one, and, and, and this is in administering discipline, things that I need to note biblically. Number one, discipline is never retaliation. Discipline is never retaliation. I don't discipline my son to retaliate against him or to exact revenge against him, okay? So dads, discipline is not retaliation. It's not retaliation. It should cause the growth of the child and the growth of the father-child relationship. Did a breakout a few years ago that we've probably got podcasts somewhere on, on just practically what it looks like to walk through the disciplining process with a, with, a, with a kid, okay? But the ultimate goal is to restore fellowship and to grow the child and to grow the relationship between the child and the father, okay? Number two, discipline is a gift to the child, though he or she may not recognize it now. Don't recognize it right now. But, it, you know, and we all know this. When you're a kid, uh, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Remember that? I was like, I don't agree with that. When, when we shape and discipline our kids, it is a future investment that they don't understand and appreciate right now. But there are a lot of us in this room that will give testimony how grateful we are that our parents disciplined us. There are others in this room who will say, I wish my dad would have disciplined me. I wish he'd have disciplined me. I'll question if he cared, you know. Or he bailed and ran away. Let me pause right here and say this. Fatherhood, the fatherhood of a man to his child, that's training wheels. The bicycle is the fatherhood of God to that child. You're the training wheels. Your goal, your task is to steer that bicycle, to steer that relationship until they reach a point of maturity that those training wheels come off. Ultimately, they are on the bike with God. Okay? So, if your dad blew it, so the training wheels got kicked off early and you crashed a bunch. God's still the bike. You're still pursuing Christ. You're still learning from God. And, and your dad, listen, if your dad ran out on you or you never met him or he beat the crap out of you every time you came through the door, he knocked your mom around. He was horrible. You, never, you went through three or four stepdads and, and you go, how am I supposed to know how to be a dad? God is your father. The training wheels were really jacked up for you. You do not have the authority to excuse yourself from being the man God has called you to be as a father. And God in his grace and redemption will bring an unbelievable, some of you heard Rob's testimony this morning, will bring an amazing amount of redemption into your family and your home that will erase the generational garbage that you lived through as a 8, 10, 14, 18 year old kid. God will bring freedom and healing through those relationships that, that you have with your kids, if you'll honor the Lord. And what you'll find is that actually God's bringing the healing just between you and him. And your kids are the catalyst or the tool that he uses, if you do it his way. I remember standing with my dad, getting ready to walk out to get married, and freaked out of my mind, because my dad had been a pastor for 20 years. A lot of y'all know his story. is in the video that we shot for this weekend. And my dad was a pastor for 20 years, and then left my mom, you know, adulterous relationships, prostitutes, the ultimate train wreck. His life ended in alcoholism, uh, sex addiction. It was, it was horrible. And I remember standing there, getting ready to walk out, thinking, you know, oh my gosh, I'm going to become like him. I'm going to become like him. And I voiced as much. And he said, let me tell you something. You will become like me if you take your fixation and your gaze off of God, your father, and Jesus Christ, your Lord. That's what I did. Don't look to me. Look to Christ. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. And he'll teach you to be a daddy and he'll teach you to be a husband. And one of the most rewarding parts of the last three years of my dad's life, he, God reconciled our relationship. And in that, we had conversations where he said, you have no idea the healing that God has brought to my life through your relationship with your kids, through your relationship with your wife. Don't let whatever happened back there be a crutch and an excuse for you not to honor the Lord. Number four, the pain of discipline should be acute but not chronic. What's that mean? Don't drag it out. Don't make them suffer. Make them pay. Make them hurt. Make them ache. They need to feel it. You know, how many times have we seen that little toddler get a swat on the diaper behind and they're like, that kid's laughing. I remember one time my mom gave me a whipping. And I was like, yes, dad's not home. This is going to be awesome. I'm getting another whooping, but mama's home, you know. And I remember going in the, in, in the bedroom and she came in there and she whooped my butt. And my brother was in there and she whooped his butt. And she left and we're like, 
laughing, you know. It's like, oh, my gosh, that's awesome. That's so different, you know. And we turn around and look, and, she, and the door is cracked, and my dad's looking in the room. He opens the door, you know, that, that, that one-handed motion of pulling the belt off, you know. He's like, he's like what's it? Somebody tell a joke? Wrap that belt around. Like, ah, it hurts, you know. He understood he understood acute pain, you know, and, uh, and, and, but discipline should be that way. It should be, it should be something that is acute. They need to understand it, feel it. They need to know. And, and I'm not just talking about corporal punishment. Okay. I'm not just talking about spanking. I'm talking about whatever that is, as they get older and, and you move out of that phase of discipline, when you administer discipline, it needs to be something that gets their attention, that they understand so that there can be a breaking point that you can move away from. And for us, when we, when we administer discipline, if I have to discipline a child today, for one thing, when, we're, when it's all done and we've restored fellowship, if they do that same thing tomorrow, I do not revisit yesterday's sin. I don't say, I'm going to whoop your tail again. We've been through this three times, yesterday and twice last week. You know why? Because God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't hold our sin. The sin that's under forgiveness is not under condemnation anymore. So I deal with this right now. Boom. If it's happened 50 times, boom, we deal with it. Why? Because the next point is you have to be consistent. They just need consistency. And you're like, man, I've done this. We've dealt with this a hundred times. Okay. Do it 101. And there's a point where it's going to begin to break away from the pattern. Maybe it's 150, maybe it's 200, but at some point it's going to work. Be consistent. God is consistent. He is unchanging and our kids need that. The point of discipline is not restitution, but restored fellowship. The point of it is not restitution, but restored fellowship. Number five, father and mother must be united in this. This is critical. This goes back to the first part of the text in Colossians 3. Father and mother have to listen. I've seen from toddlers to grown men and women when mom and dad are not on the same page. Guess who suffers? That kid, ultimately. They'll run wild. And dad will say, I can't do anything with it. I don't know what to do because, and a lot of times it's like, I talk to dads and they'll say, I know I need to do something, but his mom, she, she's, she won't let me. Okay. Mom and dad got to get on the same page. And that same page is this. Our goal is to lead this child to a higher calling of sanctification in pursuit of Christ. We've got to work together. One thing, one thing that I will not allow, and it falls under the dishonoring in our home. You can't play mom against dad. If I speak. You go to mom, we got a problem. If the queen speaks and you come to the king, we got a problem. You know, so, you know, they go and they ask mom for something. She says, no, they come to me. Hey, uh, can we, yada, yada, yada. They might package it different. I'll say, have you talked to your mom about this? Uh, no, sir. Okay. So if I go ask her right now, she'll say that, no, she doesn't know what I'm talking about. Well, I mean, we talked about something similar. Okay. Go to your room. <laughs> Cause we are a united front. Why? Because the marriage reflects the triune trinitarian existence of god father son holy spirit perfect harmony on mission together now there there are different roles and sometimes little and i'll play good cop bad cop that works as long as you're on the same page she's had them all day she's dealing with something she calls me and says i have i'm about to kill somebody so then i come in and i play you know it's, it's the old miami vice uh, Krugs and I mean uh, Crockett and Tubbs, remember? And one guy's over there with the brass knuckles. He's like got the little dangling light bulb. He's like, we can figure this out, you know. And he's like, I'll be right back. And he goes out, and the next guy comes in, fires up a smoke, and slides a cigarette. And he's like, Hey, man, we can get through this. Let's let's just talk, you know. And there's times where you know you might have to get unique in the way you deal with the situation. And mom knows if I go in and deal with this, I don't have the patience right now to deal with it. I've screamed, I've yelled. It's on you. You're like, okay, so I need to go in, and, but there needs to be a like-mindedness and a unified front. Number six, I'm preparing my children for adulthood in which they will love and serve God. Discipline feeds that. Preparing them for an adulthood where they'll love and serve God. Number seven, last one under discipline, already did it. Be consistent. Already did that one. Okay, the last couple here. Okay, I got four, four more, and these will go quick. You're a shepherd. Shepherds provide food. They provide sanctuary. We talked about this last night. They provide a large Eden. And Rob hit on this this morning. They shoot wolves. They chase lions into pits. 
They eliminate threats. They eliminate threats. It's not enough. Rob did a great job with this this morning in the first breakout. You guys are in there. It's not enough to say, for a shepherd to say to a sheep, okay, now here's what a wolf looks like, and here's what he smells like, and here's how he talks, and here's how he acts, and here's how he stalks sheep, all right? Good luck. See you on Saturday. Beware of the wolves. No, what does a shepherd do? He protects the fold. He creates the Eden and then lets them enjoy the freedom, but he shoots the wolves when they approach the wall. This is going to require you to be in tune and in touch with culture. This is going to mean you're going to have to do things like watch vampire movies before you let your daughter. It's, 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 not, it's not innocent to send them off to watch something that defames God's purpose for sexuality and marriage and say, oh, it's just a kid book. You need to know. You need to know. This doesn't mean you got to go get some skinny jeans and a faux hawk. Okay? You ain't got to fit the culture. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to become a 15-year-old. You know? <laughs> I'm picturing some of you right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've all seen that guy, haven't we? Look, that guy's 47 years old. What is he wearing? I don't know. He thinks he's in middle school, apparently. He's trying to be the cool dad, you know? You don't have to be the cool dad. They don't need a buddy. They need a shepherd. So go clear the pasture. Get online, read reviews, go watch the movie, check out the book. It's your job. I don't, want, I don't want my kids to be in a bubble. Put them in a freaking bubble. They're your sheep. You will answer to God for them. You will stand before God and give an account for every one of your kids. And they will too. And both of those things are on me as a dad. I stand before God and I give an account for how my son ultimately leads his family. I stand before God and I give an account for what I taught him about being a husband and a father. Because the training wheels, while they are training wheels, they're there. They're there and they serve a purpose. Put them in a bubble and slowly lower the bubble when they mature. And listen, Paul says to the Colossians, my purpose, my task, my goal is to present you mature in Christ. And as a father, my goal is to present them mature in Christ. And then the bubble comes off and they got to go. We don't keep them in a bubble for life. I don't, I don't, I told Tuck, hey buddy, love you. Tuck, my boy, when he's 18, pay rent or get out. Buy some groceries or go find somewhere to stay. Close by, I'll help you. It's time to become a man. We don't need to, we don't need to create a bubble that we refuse to pop. But there's a season of life where they need somebody to stand on the wall and shoot the wolves. And kill the buzzards that just circle and wait, circle and wait. I did, and if I seem over the top with this, it's because hours on hours on hours on hours, I sit on this porch and listen to girls pour their guts out and say, where the hell is her daddy? Where's he at? He's going to answer to God. And I stand out there night after night after night and say, he's not on the scene. Would some man in this church please be a spiritual father to this kid? And most nights, it's crickets chirping. Is there, you know anybody? Is there anybody in your church? Anybody you can talk to? Anybody that loves Jesus more than they love their own life and will teach you what that looks like? Anybody that you trust? I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't think. I don't know. I don't think. I talked to a girl right here on this seat two weeks ago, got pregnant, 17 years old, had the baby, kicked out of the house and kicked out of the church. Kicked out of the church. Where's your dad? Yeah, he's a deacon. I shamed him. Those were her words. I shamed him. Well, he shamed the gospel. Build a bubble if you got to. Go into the culture, find the wolves, know what they look like, know their tactics, and guard your fold. You're a shepherd. You're showing them worship daily. You're showing them worship daily. What does that look like? Well, we become like what we worship. Is this not true? Psalm 115. Let me read this to you. Psalm 115. 
This is David, I think, that's, that's writing this. And he's talking about the people of Israel, and he says, Psalm 115, 4, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. What's he saying? He's saying these are idols. They made these. These are man-made idols. They don't make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What's he saying? You become like what you worship. This works the other side too. 2 Corinthians 3, 17, 18. Paul says this. We are being transformed from one degree of God's glory to the next. One degree at a time. What's that mean? We become like what we, what we worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is why he says we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Constantly being shaped into the image of Christ. We become like what we worship. Show them how to worship. What are you becoming like at age 30, 40, 60? What are you morphing into? It should be Christ. We should be changing into the image of God, sanctified, set apart unto holiness. And they should see that. And listen, y'all, Scripture makes it clear that this works. Because you know what every kid wants? Somebody to emulate. We're showing them worship daily. Which leads me to the last point. It's this. The greatest need that your family has from you is your personal holiness. Come back to this. We touched on it last night. The greatest need that my wife has from me is my personal holiness. My failure hurts her when it comes to my relationship with Christ. The greatest need my daughters and my son have from me, my pursuit of Christ my conformity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 last night? This is where we stand, where? In the gospel. That there is a God who in his righteous indignation must punish sin, must bring under condemnation and wrath all things that are not holy, all things that are not righteous because they don't measure to his standard, because they don't meet his justice. And he'll bring those things under condemnation. But he extends grace and mercy and love to us. He extends those things to us that we're not only incapable of attaining, but that we don't deserve. And our kids need to see us pursue that God. They need to see us love righteousness, love justice, stand in the gospel, love the word of God, be conformed to Christ's image, teach them those ways, protect them from the wolves, guard our marriages against porn Guard our homes against filth on TV. Guard our lives before the Lord as men who are being conformed into the image of Christ. We lead even if we have to be pushed. Even if we have to be pushed. Last story, I promise. Short illustration. I've got a daughter who pushes me. And one morning, a couple weeks ago, she wakes me up. It's like 630 Shaking my toe. It's a big old ugly toe too. And I'm like, what is going on? Daddy. Yeah, baby. It's 6.30. I know I, we're, today's a zero day. No work, no school. Was, this is right at the end of summer. I'm just chilling today. Daddy, it's Monday morning. Monday mornings, we drink coffee and study the Bible together. And I laid there and it clicked. It dawned on me. I refuse to be led by a woman or children. Please take that right. Let them hear me out. I refuse to be led by my wife or my children. Why? Because God's not giving me that option. I'm the leader. I refuse to be, but there are times where I'm perfectly fine being pushed. And there are times in your spiritual walk where if you do all of these things, and if we raise them in the nurture and the admonition and instruction and wisdom of the Lord, there are times where you don't feel like you're leading them, where you're failing, where you're down, where you're, listen, where you're dealing with depression or anxiety, where you're frustrated. And what you figure out is maybe that little 12-year-old shoulder is right between your backbones and she's just pushing you and it gets you back up to speed. Let's raise children who will push us when we're not leading like we ought to. And let's thank God for it. Let's thank God for it. Leave you with this challenge for tonight. Go home, lead your families, lead your marriages. And if, and if, and if you're going, I can't, this, it's so far gone. Listen, begin to pursue Christ, pursue holiness, love his word. And I promise you it works. 
the power and the authority of the gospel will reshape your home, your family. So passionate about this because God is passionate about it. Because marriage is the clearest example we have of the gospel. It's the clearest platform our kids have for the gospel. If you're a stepdad, same principles. Same principles apply. To your stepkids if you live with them. To your kids every other weekend. These things work because God authored them. Have the courage to lead. We're going to end with a couple songs of worship. And my challenge to you is this. Before the Lord, ask yourself this question. Am I leading well? And commit before the Lord in humility to lead well by his authority. Again, not by your authority. I don't preach under my authority. I don't lead my home under my authority. I do so under the authority of scripture. And I have no choice but to be obedient to that. I encourage you and admonish you as brothers to go make an impact on your families and your churches and your communities. And be what God's called you to be. And stand before the Lord and give an account for your lives. Knowing It's by God's grace that we even get to be there in the first place. So let's live lives of grace. Lord, I pray that as we sing to you, that we would sing songs of worship that come from a heart of worship because from that heart we are doing everything in our power to conform to your image, to be shaped more by your spirit into your image. Your word says in Romans 8 that all who are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We want to be your sons, and we know that to do that and be that, we will be led by your Spirit. The Word also says in Romans 8 that we are to, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And some of us need to kill some stuff in our lives, tear down some strongholds, and get ourselves in a position where we understand that our personal holiness and our pursuit of Christ is the greatest need our families have so that we can then be about the business of killing wolves and providing pasture and building borders and training and raising up kids who honor and love the Lord. I pray we'd be faithful with the calling and the commission you've given us. I pray that you would impact the world with the men of this room, granddads, uncles, stepdads, brothers, cousins, future husbands, current husbands, I pray that we would be men who are, are a force that the gates of hell must reckon with. Because the world is impacted so greatly by our ministries to our families, our churches, and our world. Love you, Jesus, and thank you for calling us to such a high calling, the calling of manhood. I pray that we would serve well.